Out in the Gulf of Haraki, the summer storm was unexpectedly strong. The pirate radio ship Teary was forced to haul anchor and run before the wind, running for her life and the lives of her crew, making all haste for the shelter of Wangaparapara Harbor, an inlet on the lee side of the Great Barrier Island. She made it, barely, still broadcasting. But the Teary was in trouble, beaten badly by the storm. Her hull was compromised, the mast was down. DJ Paul Lynham interrupted the music mid-song and called Mayday. Ship and crew were in grave peril. Compass bearing is 160 degrees. 160 degrees is our compass bearing. As I said before, we're off the rocks. We're off the rocks, we're showing no lights, and our engine is failing. Our engine is failing really. Oh God, I don't think it's on. Now the engine has stopped. The engine has stopped now. Yes, we've lost our engine, we're going back into the rocks again. The engine sputtered one last time and failed. The deck and pilot house went dark. Navigation and propulsion were gone. A few minutes of backup power for the transmitter was all they had left. Lynam put out a final mayday, announced they were abandoning ship, and signed off. Abandon ship, abandon ship. I'm turning the microphone up now. Abandon ship, abandon ship. The siren has gone. We are abandoning ship. The siren has gone. We are abandoning ship. Our position is in the wrong harbor. After a couple more minutes of pre-taped promos, Radio Hauraki abruptly went off the air. Moments later, adrift in darkness and distress, Teary hit the rocks. We are two mariners, a ship's sole survivors in this belly of a whale. Its ribs are ceiling beams, its guts are carpeting. I guess we have some time to kill. Aotearoa is Maori for Land of the Long White Cloud. Those clouds helped guide early Polynesian navigators to what we now call the North Island of New Zealand. Those Polynesian explorers found Aotearoa pretty recently, just 800 years ago. It's the last sizable chunk of land on our planet to be settled by humans. Their Maori descendants, nearly a million of them, about 70% of the population in New Zealand, are still there. Today, the oceanic nation of New Zealand is a prosperous multicultural democracy. It comes in right behind Switzerland as the number two nation in the world on the 2023 International Human Freedom Index. <laughs> Rock on, New Zealand! The Gulf of Horaki is a vast natural lagoon, guarded at the entrance by the Great Barrier Island. Nestled deep within the Gulf is the city of Auckland, New Zealand's largest. The Gulf of Horaki is large enough to have a little patch out in the middle that is not within three nautical miles of any coast, so... Technically, at least, it's international waters. It's also pretty shallow. Three miles out to sea, a small vessel can drop anchor fore and aft and safely settle in for a while. Now, any experienced sailor will tell you, though, safety is a relative and very transitory thing at sea. Neptune's powers are vast, his patience infinite, and he wants you dead. Well, of those that sail the silver ships from Andalore, I am the last. In 
the deeds that rang our youthful dreams It seems she'll go undone On north for the shores of Valinor Our bells and crims MV stands for Merchant Vessel. The MV Teary first took to sea way back in 1931. For decades, she served as a coastal freighter for her builders, the G.T. Nicole shipping firm, plying her inner island trade in New Zealand waters. Hull of oak and keel of iron, 101 feet stem to stern, displacement of 169 tons. Shallow draft, powered by a chuggy diesel rated at uh, maybe 200 horsepower on a good day. A small superstructure at the aft for navigation and living quarters. A deck below that, the engine room. Just for the engine room, amidships, the Teary's cargo hold was stuffed with radio gear, transmitting an AM signal at 1480 kilohertz. Just one minute away from our very, very first breakfast show with Paddy O'Donnell. Bob Leahy here, broadcasting to you live from the MV Teary. On December 4th, 1966, she dropped anchor in the Gulf and Radio Haraki went on the air. Come gather around people wherever you roam. NZBC effectively banned the Rolling Stones hit Ruby Tuesday simply because it was on the flip side of Let's Spend the Night Together. Obviously, that song was too dangerous for the good of our morality, so it was promptly banned. Things were that ridiculous, but mercifully, all that changed when Radio Horaki eventually made its point. That's Kiwi journalist Gordon Brown writing about Radio Hauraki in August of 2014. David Gapes was also a journalist by day and a music fan by night, raised in Wellington, now living in Auckland. David, his wife Wendy, and his old friend Derek Lowe joined forces with Chris Parkinson and Dennis O'Callaghan. This small group started Radio Hauraki. The New Zealand Broadcast Corporation, or the NZBC, was formed by legislation in 1962. Like its bigger, older cousin, the BBC, it was an independent, quasi-government agency that provided radio and television content, set standards, and most important to our story, issued broadcasting licenses and assigned frequencies to would-be private stations. Now... That's all fine in the abstract, but in the real world, the NZBC was in no hurry to grant broadcasting licenses to private competitors. Uh, They had a nice little monopoly going. So in 1964, when the Radio Haraki upstarts tried to get the proper licenses, everything got lost in a bureaucratic maze. Nearly two years went by, nothing doing. So they became pirates, albeit reluctant pirates. They got a creaky old boat, the Teary, patched her up, and stuffed a transmitter in her cargo hold. After one failed attempt to launch, where Teary was actually boarded and seized by the Auckland Marine Department, the five of them took the department to court 
and won. The Teary was released from impound, and early one December morning, she quietly slipped her berth in Auckland Harbor and put out to sea. Three miles out geographically, to be exact, but legally still in a very inexact, ill-defined gray area. Strictly speaking, they weren't doing anything illegal, but it wasn't entirely legal either. Thing is, though, Radio Hauraki was an immediate smash. It was meeting a big unmet need, and the market did what markets do in those instances. It responded. Radio Hauraki also did something never done before in New Zealand. They gave airplay and promotional opportunities to homegrown musicians. That's a function, by the way, of local broadcasting that is pretty much irreplaceable. Lose the local radio station and the local music scene will suffer. But we digress. So, listeners loved Radio Hierarchy and clamored for more, and advertisers wanted in. Within months, they'd achieved market saturation over a million listeners in this very small country. Basically, the entire radio listening population of New Zealand would tune in at some point during the day. Young people embraced Radio Haraki with a cult-like fervor. Radio Haraki played local artists, like we said, and of course, the latest rock and pop hits from the UK and America. There was no room to store records out at sea, so most of the programming was pre-taped on land and shuttled out to the Tiri. They said that private radio wouldn't work, but here is the staff of Radio Haraki, or two-thirds of it gathered for a first birthday picture. The rest of the 60-strong staff is swinging on the radio ship Tiri. These shining faces are part of the success story led by co-directors Derek Lowe and David Gapes. The New Zealand Herald ran that caption underneath a group photo of the Radio Haraki team. Standing in the back, flashing a big grin, a relatively new hire, already popular with listeners, DJ Rick Grant. Rick was taking his turn ashore that day, so he got in on the group photo. Out in the Gulf, the pirates kept the old gal afloat and running somehow, and there was not one moment of dead air that entire first year. They dodged authorities, shuttled crew and tapes and provisions out to the Tiri on small boats in the dead of night, even hired a float plane when their supply boats got intercepted and turned around. And so it went until the night of January 28, 1968, when disaster struck. In the event of something happening to me, there is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife? Cold, wet, and miserable, but thankfully alive, the entire crew was rescued off the beach late the following day. The Teary was a total loss. They did manage to come back and salvage the transmitter. But AdSpace was selling. They had saved the transmitter, and try as they might, the NZBC had yet to shut them down. So fast-talking born salesman David Gapes found a local money bags who floated them alone. 
Cherry 2 put out to sea a month later. A couple of months after that, on April 28, 1968, another storm forced her aground, but Cherry 2 was up and running again in a few days. A couple of other times they got busted for drifting into territorial waters while broadcasting, had to suspend briefly, but Radio Haraki was back on the air to stay. In December of 1968, they became New Zealand's first 24-hour radio station. Finally, in 1970, the NZ authorities granted them a shore-based broadcast license. Tiri 2 turned legit and turned her bow towards Auckland. They had spent 1,111 days at sea. But, as we said earlier, Neptune is endlessly patient, and in the end, he got his wish. On that voyage home, as the crew celebrated, in a tragic but bitterly ironic twist of fate, Radio Haraki's popular new DJ, Rick Grant, was lost overboard and drowned. Radio Hauraki lives on, though. It broadcasts music, news, and commentary to this day as an online streaming service and on the air with live DJs. is intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcasts presents Rock and Roll Archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. And now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome back to another episode of the Big Rock and Roll Archaeology Show. I know it's been a while since we released one of these, but we hope the shorts are filling the need while we put these more complex stories together. As we have found our way into the 1970s, unsurprisingly, the story has indeed gotten more complex and just plain bigger. Rock and roll in the 50s, as we've shown, was a very small group of pioneers. Easy stories to tell. In the 60s, and really the latter half, it exploded. But it's the 1970s where it becomes the undisputed heavyweight champ of the music world and on par with any other player in the culture of the times, Western or otherwise, as we will see. Think of it as um, as an expanding funnel. So the research has gotten more complex, bigger, a lot more to read, a lot more people to talk to. The choices we need to make to tell our story have gotten more difficult. There's just so much more. But the mission for the RNRA is music, culture, and technology. And those are our guiding lights. So indulge us some time and a few shorts in between, and you will get the full story of how the music of the latter half of the 20th century became such an artistic juggernaut. With that, if you can't tell from our cold open, we aren't talking radio today. 
specifically the freeform FM formats rise and fall and why that is so important to our overall story. This outing will be more of a think piece, yeah, sort of like episode nine, uh, the medium, the message, the music. And like that episode, this is about technology and how that was used to grow rock and roll into the global phenomenon that it became. We are going to take an hour or so to tell a specific decade-ish long story for you. This allowed us to also step out of the music chronology we usually stick with as well. Expect some tunes from all over the landscape. There will be some surprises. Hey, you already got a few sea shanties. Other than that, please take a listen or sample uh, to more of the offerings at PantheonPodcasts.com. We have made some changes recently and are again adding several new shows for you. Something for everybody. And there are some very big announcements coming soon. Keep an eye on the webpage for you. Okay, let's get to it. Diggers, we are very excited and proud to bring you Rock and Roll Archaeology, Episode 23, Radio Radio. Before we get going, a word about that opening story. This episode is about freeform rock radio in America during the 1970s. Rock music and freeform radio got real tight with each other during these years, and together, they were a potent cultural force. It started with pirate stations overseas and the border blasters, um, you know, those powerful AM stations just over the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, they're still around, by the way. Anyhow, the Pirates and the Blasters created rebel radio culture in the 1960s. They were the precursors, the first draft of freeform rock radio. Against tough odds and in defiance of conventional wisdom, the Pirates and the Blasters proved that freeform music radio had an audience, and that audience was potentially vast. Kind of like the Beatles loved Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly growing up, the freeform DJs were inspired by Radio Caroline off the British coast, or Wolfman Jack broadcasting from just over the line of Juarez, Mexico. The 1960s Pirates and Blasters are a great piece of rock history, and we found in our research that it's an untapped and underappreciated piece. We wanted to bring you some of it, but we had time and room in this chapter for just one story, so we picked the New Zealand Pirates, Radio Haraki. Not as well-known as, say, Radio Caroline, but it's an illustrative kind of story about the movement. And it's an underdog story and a little drama to it, and we always love that. So, there you go. All right. Hit it, boys.
are um, of a certain age. So we can vividly recall when the Rush tune, The Spirit of Radio, the opening cut on the album Permanent Waves, released in January of 1980, first hit the airwaves. And hit the airwaves, it did. FM rock DJs loved to play The Spirit of Radio. Perhaps they saw and heard themselves in that opening verse. Begin the day with a friendly voice, a companion unobtrusive, plays that song that's so elusive. The Spirit of Radio was the song that pushed Rush into the mainstream. It anchored their first album to go platinum. And for good reason, it kills. It's one of those songs that makes you drive too fast when it comes on in the car. In a 2014 interview, Rush drummer extraordinaire and lyricist Neil Peart said the different sections of the song were intended to make it seem like you were changing stations, you know, flipping through the presets on the car stereo. What's interesting to us about the song, though, and hindsight is our friend here, we didn't really see or hear this at the time. The Spirit of Radio is indeed a celebration of the Spirit of Radio, but it's kind of an obituary, an epitaph. Let's look closer at the late, great Neil Peart's lyrics, and maybe you'll see what we mean. Now, this is just our spin, our interpretation, but we're big Rush fans, so we feel like we're on solid ground here. So the next verse has magic at your fingers, then you change the station to a course that crackles with life and bristles with energy, bearing a gift beyond price. But on the third verse, there's a clear transition. All this machinery making modern music can still be open-hearted, not so coldly charted. Endless compromises, illusions of integrity, then some instrumental fireworks. Holy shit, these guys could really play. And then the epitaph, uh, set to a bubbly reggae beat. For the words of the prophets are written on the studio walls. Concert halls echo with the sound of salesmen. A sly little nod to Paul Simon's The Sound of Silence, but with prophets as in profit and loss, P-R-O-F-I-T, stand in for seekers and visionaries. The sound of silence is now the sound of salesmen. It's that on the headstone. So what got lost? What exactly are we mourning here? What happened? to the spirit of radio. We'll go back through some of the history, but first, we want to get this out of the way. There's a pretty well-established narrative out there, and we've seen it in a lot of books, movies, TVs, and in the lyrics of that Rush song we just dissected. It goes like this. As the 70s closed out, corporate America moved in on freeform rock radio stations. In market after market, from sea to shining sea, our plucky, heroic DJs put up a noble fight. But alas, like it so often goes, greed won out in the end. Freeform DJs were straightjacketed by a bunch of consultants in three-piece suits. And the suits, motivated by corporate greed and wielding market-tested, data-driven playlists, killed what we loved about Freeform Radio. The irreverence, the spontaneity, the sense of community, and most of all, the DJs who would challenge and surprise their audience, they were all sacrificed to the rapacious gods of commerce. They paved paradise, and they put up a parking lot. 
Now, if you've listened to our podcast for a while, well, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, second of all, you longtime listeners know we are very sympathetic to this kind of narrative. Rebel rocker is good. Corporate greed, bad. We've told that story more than once around this particular campfire, but at least this time, it's not the whole story. Yes, corporate greed contributed to the demise of Freeform Radio, but there was more to it, and a fair amount of the damage was self-inflicted. We'll talk about that some, but first, let's go back to the early days and meet the OG, the Big Daddy. I want to tell you about Texas Radio and the Big B. Comes out of the Virginia swamps, cool and slow with plenty of precision. And the backbeat narrow and hard to master. San Francisco, early spring of 1967, as the summer of love began, Tom Donahue and his girlfriend, soon-to-be wife Rachel, we're getting baked and listening to The Doors' first album in her little Haight-Ashbury flat. Hey, how come we don't ever hear this one on the radio? Ray asked Tom, who was now 10 years into his career as a popular DJ, spinning the hits and only the hits on AM radio stations around the Bay Area. They called him Big Daddy, sometimes Papa Bear, and he looked the part. Tom was a big dude. He topped 300 pounds, already in his late 30s with four kids. Big, imposing, and opinionated, and at the moment, between gigs. Ray's question galvanized him to action, but it was not a new thought to Tom. A few weeks earlier, he had written a manifesto slash screed, and it got published by this new music magazine called Rolling Stone. The title, AM Radio is Dead, and its rotting corpse is stinking up the airwaves. <laughs> Let's take a moment here to define and explain some terms. AM, amplitude modulation, and FM, frequency modulation, are both technical terms related to radio broadcasting, but they also have cultural significance. In the technical sense, AM works by varying the amplitude or strength of the carrier wave in response to the audio signal, while FM works by varying the frequency of the carrier wave. AM radio was the dominant form of radio broadcasting for much of the 20th century. Its big advantage is clear reception over very long distances, especially at night when atmospheric skips can vastly increase the range of an AM signal. AM radio stations nowadays are most often associated with news, talk shows, and sports broadcasts. FM radio technology has been around since the 1930s. The FCC assigned a frequency range and granted licenses, but for decades, not much happened with it. Most FM stations were small-time, very local. Some music stations filled a particular niche, uh, classical, jazz, folk and blues, show tunes and swing. Some were owned by schools and nonprofits or churches. The FM ban was also where one might find foreign language programming. 
FM has much shorter range than AM, but superior bandwidth, which means better sound quality and the ability to broadcast in stereo. There is such a thing as AM stereo that came along in the 80s, but the technology never caught on in the States. Now, AM and FM are also cultural signifiers. AM stands in for tightly formatted, commercialized, corporate, a short, repetitive playlist, lots of vapid but rapid patter from the DJ, tons of ads. Starting in the late 60s, FM radio came to signify young and hip, progressive, irreverent, relaxed, intimate talk from the hosts. A long play format oriented towards the album rather than the single. AM was Neil Diamond. FM was Neil Young. By the mid-1960s, the AM band was getting crowded. The Federal Communications Commission was running out of slots to assign, so they relaxed some of their rules about content and ownership to encourage greater utilization of the FM band. Uh, like we said a moment ago, Big Daddy Tom Donahue was a radio industry veteran. He was abreast of these changes in the regulatory environment. He saw an opportunity. He told Rachel, FM is the future. Let's find us an FM station. Tom and Ray pulled out the phone book and started cold calling. When they tried to reach KMPX, a foreign-language radio station in San Francisco, nobody answered. Eureka! A licensed station, up and running, frequency already assigned, and nobody's home. Tom tracked down station management and went right to work on them. They reluctantly said fine and gave him the graveyard shift to test out his no-format format. On April 4th, 1967, Freeform FM Radio went on the air. That's Leon Russell singing his own composition, Shoot Out on the Plantation. And uh, Leon is currently on the road traveling with Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs, and Englishmen. That's what Joe's calling his new show that will be in San Francisco. I see they're appearing in New York, Philadelphia, all around at the moment. Uh, this is a combination early in the game of Joe Cocker and Leon Russell doing Leon's Delta Lady. That's Big Daddy Tom Donahue on the air in San Francisco, circa 1970. Note the laid-back conversational style and Tom acting as an expert curator, providing context and background on the songs. This was brand new, and it caught on fast. Later that same year, Tom and Ray headed down to L.A. and found another languishing FM station, KPPC. Tom took over as program director, and it started out promising, but then there was a bitter labor dispute. KPPC management hired scabs, so Tom bailed and moved his staff over to yet another underutilized FM station, 94.7 KMET. Spring of 1968, The Mighty Met went on the air with a freeform DJ-driven rock music format, broadcasting in stereo.
about gatekeepers and talk about curators. Gatekeepers control access to resources. Nowadays, the term is most commonly applied to media or information, but it comes from a World War II study of the grocery buying habits of Midwestern housewives. Kurt Lewin, a social psychologist, coined the term when he studied how wartime rationing affected purchases and menu planning in American households. After the war, other social scientists started looking at Lewin's concept of gatekeeping and applying it to mass media dissemination and consumption. In the context of the music industry, a record label could act as a gatekeeper, deciding which artists are signed to a contract and which artists are not. The program director of the radio station could also be a gatekeeper, the booking manager at a nightclub. A curator is something distinct and different from a gatekeeper, though at first glance they may seem similar. They both play big roles in shaping the content that is made available to the public, but they approach this task from different perspectives. Here's the key difference. Gatekeepers control access and make decisions based primarily on financial or business considerations. The curator seeks to provide context and a meaningful experience for the consumer. Business considerations can be a part of the mix. Everybody's got to make a living, but they're secondary. It just has to be good, or funny, or interesting, or tell a story, or something. To the curator, aesthetic and thematic considerations hold sway over finance. Music curators are still around. All the music streaming services have them, both in-house professionals and or community members who've built up a rep and a following. Speaking of curating, the Spotify playlist for this episode is great. Be sure to check it out. Link is in the show notes. In fact, all of the RNRA episodes have the playlist set for you. Okay, back to our narrative. The freeform radio DJ was a pretty special curator, knowledgeable about the local scene. They lived and worked right there in your town. Concerts, upcoming events, new releases, giveaways, they had a line on all that stuff. They didn't just curate music, they facilitated a music community. Best part of all... No gatekeeping, no paywalls or monthly subscriptions. Available free of charge, 24-7, at home, in your car, through your headphones, on your boombox at the beach. There's a destination a little up the road from the habitations of the towns we know. A place we saw the lights turn low, the jigsaw jazz and the get fresh flow. Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts, two turntables and a microphone. Bottles and cans that just clap your hands or just clap your hands. A lot of the following is standard stuff all good DJs do, whether it's the young woman spinning discs at the wedding reception or fat boy slam at Brighton Beach. Move through different themes and moods. Match the key and or tempo so songs flow into one another. Group songs by theme or by name or play twofers by the same artist and so on. Lots of little tricks like this. And of course, hosting, serving as a master of ceremonies, providing some humor, some commentary, and context. And all the while, you keep it moving and stay out of the way of the music. All in all, a really fun job with a big creative element to it, a chance to make some culture, not just comment on it or mimic it. And at their best, freeform radio DJs use their platforms to rally the local music community behind good causes, raise awareness, and raise money. This was all new stuff in the 70s, and best as we can tell, it was uniquely American. Why? 
Well, a bunch of things. The regulatory environment, the size and scale and diversity of American radio markets, our car culture, the fact that most of us are at least half crazy anyway here in America. <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, freeform music radio flourished here and only here, albeit for just a short period of time. Some evidence for that assertion. The whole time we've been doing rock and roll archaeology, the whole time, over and over, we've read and heard stories from overseas rockers, especially from the UK, just getting blown away by American radio when they came here on tour. It was great. It was everywhere, all the time. And bloody hell, it was free. All we hear is radio So Brits could get all gaga when they heard American radio. Queen is about as British as a British rock band can be. And yet, their biggest hit single was a nostalgic ode to and a humorous defense of American freeform radio. One morning, Roger Taylor's toddler son, hearing a song he didn't like on an L.A. radio station, blurted out, Radio Kaka! <laughs> Roger laughed it off, but the phrase stuck in his head. He made a small edit, Radio Gaga. Radio Goo Goo? Sure, why not? Turns out, Radio Goo is a phrase broadcast engineers use to describe an intermittent staticky signal. Roger started fiddling with a synthesizer and a drum machine and came up with the bones of the song. He didn't think it was suitable material for the upcoming Queen album, but the other guys loved it and fleshed out the lyrics and arrangement. Out of the mouths of babes, Radio Gaga was released in early 1984. By then, American Freeform Radio was already on the way out. There's an old quip attributed to Ernest Hemingway when asked, How did you go bankrupt? He replied, Two ways. Gradually... And then suddenly. So it was with media consolidation in America. The first consolidation move we talked about in this podcast was right at the end of the 1950s. Not in radio per se, but adjacent to it in the record industry. That's when these small indie labels that started rock and roll got bought up or went under. We'll pick three examples. We've talked about these companies before. Atlantic, Sun, and Chess. These small labels signed, recorded, and released the debuts of, respectively, Ray Charles, Elvis Presley, and Chuck Berry. Not at all a stretch to say these three indie record labels started rock and roll. Well, not one of them survived the 60s intact. Here's how we put it back in Chapter 4. Throughout the 50s, the indie labels had the jump on signing and recording rock and roll and R&B artists and they took serious market share away from the bigs. Around 1960, the bigs finally noticed. Ignoring rock and roll had cost them dearly, in dollars and in opportunities. And they made their move.
couple of decades later, after ignoring FM radio for way too long, corporate America realized there is money being made here, and it's not being made by us, and this will not do. And so they made their move. It started with another wave of deregulation of the radio industry in the early 1980s. This was a big deal, bigger than most people realized at the time. It goes a long way towards explaining what happened to freeform radio, so we're going to unpack this some more. Prior to the early 1980s, the FCC had strict rules limiting the number of radio and television stations that a single entity could own in a given market. The rules went back to FDR and the New Deal, and they were admittedly outdated, arcane, and hard to understand, but they more or less worked. Their stated purpose was to promote healthy competition by preventing monopolies. Big national companies could, and most certainly did, muscle the competition out of local markets. But they could only do it so much. For example, in most markets, a single company could own no more than one AM radio station, one FM station, and one television station. And again, the rules mostly worked. They promoted competition and prevented any one company from gaining too much control over the media in a particular area. But in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected U.S. president and deregulation mania started sweeping the land. His FCC appointees were a bunch of Wall Street shills, and they got busy right away, rescinding rules and rendering the agency toothless. Now, instead of preventing monopolies in local markets, the agency spent its time finding DJs for telling dick jokes. Independent, privately held radio stations, many of them literal mom-and-pop businesses, started dropping like flies, not unlike what happened to the indie record labels in the 1960s. If they were lucky, they got bought up. If they were unlucky, they got buried and went bankrupt. Your station gets bought up, and there's a new sheriff in town, a program director from corporate, and he's got a playlist generated by the marketing department back in New York. Local music programming? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's over. Community service programming? Well, sure, for two hours, starting at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, and that's it. And by the way, we're laying off your support staff, freezing your salary, and cutting back on your benefits package. All right, meeting's over. Get back to the booth, read this Army recruitment ad, and queue up the Ario Speedwagon. But remember, we're all on the same team, committed to your success. One big happy family. Join the Army. Travel to exotic, distant lands. Meet exciting, unusual people. And then kill them. It's a bummer. It's a huge fucking bummer. And we've been there. A lot of you have been there, too. One morning, you just show up for work like usual, and the ground is shifted under your feet. Yeah, fucking hate what's going on. You have legitimate doubts any of it will even work. 
but you got obligations. You need that paycheck. So you suck it up and do your best in spite of everything. All this is our way of saying we understand and empathize with the radio professionals who endured corporate mergers and takeovers and were forced to just hang in and try to survive. But we're going to bite the hand that feeds us and say this. In at least some cases, they just left the door wide open. Through naivety, stubborn inattention, and plain old stupidity, they let the soulless minions of capitalism just walk right in with their spreadsheets and market research and lame-ass pre-programmed playlists. To no small degree, they brought it on themselves. How do we know this? Well, <laughs> we were there. We watched it happen. We've said this the whole time here at RNRA. We're fans, not experts or insiders, just rock and roll fans. Smart, well-informed fans, we hope, but yeah, kind of like you. Anyway, we were big fans of freeform rock radio growing up in Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s. It was an embarrassment of riches. We had the two giants living next door to each other on the FM dial, 94.7 KMET and 95.5 KLOS. They spent the 70s slugging it out for supremacy in the nation's second largest radio market. It was a pitched back-and-forth battle. Up the dialways, KNEC, another freeform station, focused on metal and heavy rock, but DJ-driven and locally run. And there was the station that managed to hang in the longest as a local independent, KROQ. So, what happened? <laughs> well, nature has one commandment, adapt or perish. In the second half of the 70s, rock music did what rock music does, did what has kept it alive for nearly 75 years now. It changed. It evolved. The punk and new wave underground joined the mainstream. It was a generational shift, and any well-informed, engaged music fan could see it coming a mile away. And not for nothing, but many of those OG baby boomer artists from the 60s who were so beloved and revered by FM rock DJs, well, they saw it coming too, and they adapted. Well, the clever ones did anyway. I present to you Exhibit A. We mentioned KROQ or K-Rock. The Rock was a disaster for a long time, through most of the 70s. Bad management, mostly, but the competition in L.A. was ferocious. In the late 70s, KROQ finally did something smart. They hired DJs who leaned into punk and new wave. It was probably out of desperation, anything to set themselves apart from the competition. Uh, whatever, it worked. K-Rock's renewed commitment to cutting-edge music got them noticed. 
Their most popular DJ, Rodney Bingenheimer, played a crazy eclectic mix, um, heavy on new wave and punk, with a special emphasis on local artists. Uh, Rodney on the Rock and other programming made the station a natural fit for LA's burgeoning punk scene. Their ratings soared. By 1981, KROQ was right there in the mix, competing for number one in the market. They made it to 1986, before Infinity Broadcast swooped in and bought them out. But Infinity paid what was then a huge price, $45 million. And as one of the terms of the sale, K-Rock was granted continued local control. Q was the notable exception, though. The other freeform rock stations in L.A. and elsewhere, well, they just failed to adapt. Worse than that, they refused to adapt. And since these were freeform DJ-driven stations, who was it exactly who refused to adapt? A rhetorical question, the answer is obvious. Too many of these DJs were just stuck in the past, wallowing in boomer nostalgia and wouldn't grow or change. It wasn't all that difficult. Just go back to the original mission. Curate, without fear or favor, the best new rock music for their vast audience. Instead, they became gatekeepers. And who needs another fucking gatekeeper? They got high on their own supply and became what they had rebelled against a generation earlier. Their audience could sense it. Uh, We could sense it. And we were already moving on well before the corporate buzzards swooped in. August the 1st, 1981, seemed like a day like any other day. In political news, this wasn't widely known until later, but the U.S. and the then-Soviet Union exchanged diplomatic messages agreeing to resume talks on limiting strategic nuclear weapons. In technology news, something that attracted modest attention at the time, but turned out to be a very big deal indeed, the world's biggest computer maker, IBM, announced it would be shipping out models of its first personal computer available for everyday consumers. And 11 days later, IBM PCs were in stores. The biggest movie in the land was An American Werewolf in London. The nighttime soap opera Dallas was the most watched television series. In music news, on that day, Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield topped the Billboard music charts, the number one single in America. 
Oh, uh, one more piece of music news. As of one minute past midnight, um, Eastern Standard Time, there was a new kid in town who will be a big new challenge to radio. We'll leave it here for now. We'll talk a little more about radio and certainly MTV in future episodes. Now, what was the name of that first tune they played? Thanks for listening. I'm Christian Swain, and I gotta move these refrigerators, gotta move these color TVs. We'll be back in a few months with another chapter of Rock and Roll Archaeology on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Meantime, we'll put out some more shorts for you. Keep up the rocking. Archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at PantheonPodcast.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social. At Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.